What an amazing feeling. You've just gone by a 50-foot, you know, picture of yourself on City Hall. 100,000-plus people are on the main drag. It's your hometown. Your brother is about 80 meters behind. You've got him back onto the points that he needs to have a chance for Johnny Brownlee to be the world champion. And now the greatest one-day racer ever, Alistair Brownlee, makes that final 200-meter run. What an amazing feeling. Alistair Brownlee needs little introduction for listeners to the World Triathlon Podcast. The only triathlete to successfully defend an Olympic title, a two-time world champion, mixed relay world champion and Commonwealth Games champion. He's also one of two men who share the Brownlee surname, credited with the relentless surge in triathlon's growth, not just in Britain, but around the world. So Alistair, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. And how are you and where are you at the moment? Uh, yeah, I'm okay, thank you. I am uh, currently sat at home uh, in Leeds uh, with my foot up, uh, been uh, icing my ankle to try and get the swelling down. I had the operation on it 10 days ago and yeah, that's my, uh, my focus into, at the moment. Can't do really any training, but um, yeah, just hoping that uh, I can get my ankle completely better so I can uh, get training soon. And plenty of other things to be keeping you busy in the meantime we'll obviously talk about the book launch in a while as well um games olympic games coming up did you start to feel at any point it seems a bit strange to say like beijing finished 12th 2008 olympics it seems strange to say that that was like almost the moment your career kicked on in terms of results because you didn't race again for almost a year after that but from May 2009, you were putting together incredible results. Did you, did you get a sense of, did your confidence build, build, and you were almost feeling a little bit invincible on some of those start lines? Beijing, uh, for me, um, you know, I, I hadn't expected to even make it, and uh, but by the time I stood on the start line, I was like, yeah, I can, you know, win this race. Uh, and even though I had no chance of winning the race, but you know, I went out and afterwards, uh, you know, I remember thinking. Yeah, I was actually racing with the very best in the world till what kind of 10 minutes of the race to go. So the majority of the race, 90% of it, I, I was there. And I don't think it gave me self-belief. I think what it did do was just like, just say to me how close you are and actually motivated me to say, if you go, you know, away and you can find that uh, extra little bit, then, you know, you will be there and, you know, you'll be able to race with the best in the world. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it kind of kick-started my career, but it um, it went you know it went a long way to encouraging to, to motivating me um, and yeah and and showing I guess myself which is a, a sense of self belief that yeah I could race with the best and then the year later in in two thousand and nine the first race was in Madrid and I you know I stood on that start line and I didn't think I could win that race um, I thought right. I, I've been away for this time, I, you know, I, I think I probably can race near the best and hopefully hang on till the end rather than blow up like I had done the year before. Um, and, but yeah, completely uh, surprised myself. Um, yeah, genuinely completely surprised myself. I, I remember the race that I won after that, the second time of the World Series is in Washington, D.C., in a fantastic event, um, and being completely surprised that I managed to, to win again, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, we had Richard Murray on the show uh, a few weeks ago and, you know, another one of the sort of great characters from the last decade and so on. And he, it was quite amusing that like, him t 
totally unprompted talking about you and, and Johnny almost as almost as one. It must have been nice to have to be the marked man and to have Johnny with you and almost you two against the world. Yeah, well, things change in you know in sport you uh, and things change quickly so within that time in 2009 you know i went effectively from some young kid who was an underdog to the favorite in every race that i was going to stand the start line on and in lots of ways that was the same almost for the next decade um and yeah that and that that changed quick and it's something you have to learn to deal with and, and adapt to and i guess people learn to do with that in in different ways um it was fantastic to go through most of that with johnny you know just on a mostly a practical point of view of yeah we you know we're traveling together going to races dealing with a lot of the same kind of stresses as well of, of expectation but at the same time dealing with a level of kind of interest in triathlon that never in a million years would we have ever thought would be involved you know getting to the point a few years after that and the lead up into london where People are like constantly asking um, how things are going. Um, you know, when was the next race? What had happened in the race the week before? You know, why were you so terrible? And um, you know, telling, encouraging me to make sure I beat that Spanish guy next week. Um, and you know, there were conversations that were just happening in the shop while you're going to buy a, <laughs> buy a pint. And, and yeah, the change from in the three or four years was was enormous. And yeah, you know, something we kind of had to had to uh, learn learn to cope with and I think doing that together was great uh, and then obviously obviously being able to train hard and push each other on every day um, and and um, yeah and deal with with going to races and we were in lots of ways phenomenally lucky um, we stood on the start line of two Olympic games next to each other um, in great shape knowing that we couldn't have really done much more uh, or be in a better position um, and, and shared a quiet joke of, yeah, we'd better not F this up and then got on with going out and racing. <laughs> and then even after everything that you've been through together, like to see you both at the end of the Arzakena World Cup race, Johnny had won and like the sort of the bark of raw delight that you shared with him as well. That that competitive edge is clearly not dimmed at all from either yeah. of you. Well, yeah, we're both very competitive people, obviously. and. Um, yeah, we often joke and well together and interviews and whatever that yeah, when we were younger, probably just before 2009, um, if we were playing, you know, a game of Monopoly or something, it would go wrong very quickly. Uh, and but but since then, we tend to use our competitiveness, I think, when we need to. And uh, the rest of the time, we're pretty much uh, our competitiveness is used up and we're a bit more chilled about everything. So, yeah, no, we are competitive. And um, yeah, I mean, it's been a long time and, and for us I, I think you know it's all in perspective of um of what's gone on we you know we started racing each other around muddy fields in Leeds when we were six seven eight uh yeah you know how long ago is that <laughs> in terms of the rivalry between you and Johnny then like how has that sort of manifested on the race courses or have you mainly been able to sort of I don't know, direct it towards, like you said, the Spaniards or, or a Richard Murray or whatever, um, you know, did it get to the point as well where you're obviously, I mean, there were obviously years where you were sort of battling each other directly for the world title as well. Yeah, I think, uh, so most of the time, really, uh, it was just 
we want to win this race. We just want to win. Uh, <laughs> One of us, well, like either. Yeah, well, and I always wanted it to me to be me, obviously. Um, and I, I, I thought about it like this. I, you know, I wanted yeah. to win the race, and um, I'd be that would be like whatever like the majority nine out of ten of my happiness and the one out of ten would be if johnny didn't come second <laughs> uh so yeah so the you know the vast completely selfish and i wanted to win and that is what it is um and it didn't really matter you know it wasn't necessarily one like person you just wanted to to win i said there, were, there was probably quite a, a long period in that where um both of us or one of us saw Javier as our main competitor and so yeah if we're thinking in a race it's like we're going in it's like you know how how we're kind of beating him and yeah the likelihood is that there'd be um there'd be someone else um you know there might be someone else kind of pop up here or there but it'd be mostly trying to be Javier and then you know things changed and other people were the kind of main main competition like a few years later I guess going into Rio but he was he was still still always there but yeah it it was mostly, you know, not about one person or but just yeah, trying to beat whoever. And, and you know, by his own admission, John, some of Johnny's best results have been as a result of sticking, you know, listening to your race plan. I know, like, you know, several times he's kind of mentioned that there were races where he felt maybe it was time to, to drop back to the pack and you were urging him to, to push on. So do you obviously you'll be watching from the sidelines in, in Tokyo? Um, as a as a hype man as a wingman you've got quite a quite an important role to play for him presumably i think yes and no um I, you know i can um obviously offer a little bit of advice and support and 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 do what i can um but at the end of the day he's the one that's standing on that start line um and he's the one that's got to go out there and race and so yeah i think it's really important you know he makes those decisions about what he has to do to get there in in the best possible shape and so ultimately, you know, he can stand there confident knowing that he's um, done everything he can and um, he can he, he should go out and perform. And you did a huge amount of training together at the start of the year. Obviously, you know, your goal was the same as his to hit the Tokyo start line. Um, and you started on the lead start line, presumably knowing that that race would define whether or not you'd go to Tokyo were you did, were you fully fit stood on the on the lead start line and and how has the how is the ankle situation at the moment uh yeah no I wasn't very fit stood on the lead start line um I had yeah just kind of three months of kind of hell leading up into that knowing that um I had this ankle problem uh knowing at the same time there's nothing I kind of could have done about it really um, and just doing absolutely everything I could to be in a half decent shape to um, to try and perform uh, and ultimately yeah it didn't work out you know I, a lot of me thought in the um, lead up to it that actually yeah I just shouldn't race there's probably not a lot of um, positives that could come come from racing um, but I thought ultimately it's it's in Leeds uh it's your last chance you know I think give yourself the chance to um and you, and you kind of don't know you might you might get very lucky and you know it might might work out differently but yeah I, I knew I was um always up against it and it you know it was going to be a challenge but yeah I thought I'll, one last time give yourself a chance and see what happens 
I was, yeah, I was wincing for you on some of those on the run. It it looked it looked quite painful, I have to say. Yeah, well, yeah, it was quite painful, but by then I was just kind of uh, jogging around to a um, to pretty much, um, and it was it was a shame. But um, yeah, I, it, the the ankle um, now is well. I had an operation on it about ten days ago, and um, yeah, I'm just rehabbing it and, and trying to recover at the moment so I can get back and do some training and yeah do do what I do what I love doing yeah and there was obviously a lot of noise around the race as well afterwards and everything that went on but um you know do you leads as an event is is down to you and and Johnny and uh you know it's become a favorite do you think it'll come back has did the move to round a park possibly extend its life cycle as as an event do you think or are you are you privy to those sort of kind of conversations at the moment as well yeah i really obviously um yeah i'm really proud in the role uh kind of we've played in um triathlon in general in the uk um and the race in leeds and having it in leeds is is part of that um you know you you don't have to go back very far even you know in a few years way after 2012 you think there's no chance we'll ever get a World Series race in Leeds, and and then it happened. And um, yeah, I'm proud in the role that uh, we played in that. Proud to be from Leeds to show off the triathlon of the sport of triathlon to Leeds, and proud to be a triathlete to show off the city of Leeds and the support that triathlon's got in the city. Um, so it's been fantastic. I don't know at the moment whether it'll continue, but obviously um, I'll be doing everything I can to try and to try and um, hope that try and support it continuing. And I know you said after after the leads that um, that was you know an unfortunate way to to finish your your career on the on the blue carpet with World Triathlon. But were leads to continue? Do you do you think you know that there could be you you could have more World Triathlon racing in you down the line? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No. I. That's the. That was the. Um, that's definitely the end of my, my world triathlon racing career. I think, um, yeah, you know, to be honest, a lot of me over the last three months has, has asked myself why, you know, why did I even try uh, get back to the Olympics effectively? Um, I was always up against it in terms of, I, I knew running quick and um, training for short distance triathlon was a risk factor in terms of injuries. Um, I, I knew being older, you know, slightly slower and found it harder to do that that quick work um and i knew the it that it was kind of stacked against me you know i i knew that even if i got to the start line in rio in the best possible kind of shape i could have got to i knew it wouldn't have been um where i was at rio or in london um i knew i couldn't kind of get back to that level um but ultimately and then obviously that i got injured and that was really frustrating and gave me months of stress um and i asked myself why why had i done it um and that is the that's the kind of power of sport and the olympic games that you know that's the answer to that question i did it because yeah i, I love competing in, in triathlon at the top of it um uh, in olympic distance and i love the olympic games and it's given me so much um in you know in my career over the last 10 years but yeah ultimately uh i've also got to sit here and look and go i've been so lucky to go to three olympic games um yeah have a long career in um, the olympic distance side of the sport and 
obviously win the Olympics twice, you know, the 14 year old me would have told you to get lost and you were, you know, taking the mickey if, uh, if you, if you told him that. So, um, yeah, uh, and I'm completely happy with that decision. And, um, uh, at the moment I'm just, uh, really looking, you know, looking forward to getting my um, ankle sorted and being able to race over long distance racing. And Alex, yeah, a good, not a bad way to sort of hand the, the baton to him by him winning leads. And he's, he's definitely got something of the sort of Brownlee roar in him as well. You could see the way that the end of that race was going for him, right? How, how well do you know Alex? You trained with him a fair bit? Yeah, I know Alex pretty well. And yeah, I mean, he's a absolutely fantastic athlete and uh, yeah, has been for quite a few years. And, I, you know, it was only a matter of time till he produced a performance like that. So and it was really, really, really cool to see that. And um, yeah, and yeah, I completely agree. He, that was a, a real kind of breakthrough performance for him. And I think he's really put himself in a, a great position to be, yeah, I think one of the people who you, should, you know, we can really look at as a, a, a hope for the Olympic Games for, for winning. Sad for all triathlon that you won't be appearing at the Games, but you will be, um, there's a position on the IOC athlete commission that, that you're you're going for so yeah i'd be interested to hear about the ins and outs of of how that's going and, and what's driving you to to get involved yeah that's been um a, a really interesting um role to play for me and, and something that i've learned so much about um i think firstly why did i decide to do it i'm passionate about sport um sport triathlon but sport in general and the olympic movement and the role that the olympic movement has to play in the uh, future of um, promoting, inspiring and motivating people to be active um, and to, to dream to achieve goals. Um, I think the athlete representat representation is really at the heart um, of the Olympic movement to be able to uh, allow athletes to have their voice um, right up through the Olympic movement. Um, and it's something that, yeah, I think is, is really important, um, but, uh, but uh, fascinating. Um, and at the same time, it seems like the, there's going to be a challenging period um, for, the, for the Olympics as, as a whole, you know, in the next generation or two, and it'd be a, an honour to play a, a part in that. So I've been keeping myself busy, um, you know, talking to different athletes um, around the world where I can, um, just learning about the issues. And obviously, I've been, been a triathlete for a long time, but the Olympics consists of lots of sports, um, which, of course, is the beauty of it. And learning about the issues and, and what's going on in those sports has been been fascinating for me. Do you think the athlete's voice in general is something that isn't heard enough? I mean, every federation has has a commission, and that obviously then feeds in. And, and the IOC athlete commission is obviously vitally important. Um, and having those sort of roots and, and accountability is crucial. But from sport to sport, how have you found? the athletes in terms of you know their, their feeling as to whether they are listened to and and the sort of issues that maybe they're facing every sport uh, is different but i think one of the fantastic things uh, you know that the ioc has done is kind of encouraged and facilitated um the the building of the athlete commission network around the world both in terms of the sporting federation ifs um athlete commission so world triathlon's got its athlete commission that um is elected by the athletes they the athletes are represented through them obviously to the to world triathlon but also other bodies like the ioc um and from a, a country basis the noc basis um so there's that network of 
athlete representation around the world, which um, is, is fantastic. Uh, I think as I've been speaking to people, um, that it's interesting, you know, some sports, obviously sports are completely different. They might not at first glance be a, uh, things much in common between um, triathlon and kind of judo or, or, you know, or something else. But, you know, a lot of the issues run quite deep. Um, one of the things that you talk to a lot of athletes about is their concern that um, a, uh, their event might be taken out of the Olympic programme and, and replaced by another event. There's this kind of general feeling that shorter, um, more interesting uh, in, 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 in brackets, uh, better viewed uh, events, you know, should be replacing longer events for the future of the Olympic movement and athletes are concerned about that. Obviously, there seems to be quite a lot of um, talk about the, the uh, things about Rule 50 and um, athletes' right to protest and hear their, uh, have their views uh, and the right to expression views heard at the Olympic Games and that's something that concerns people um, and that seems to be changing with, with the IOC slightly moving on it again in, in the last few, in the last week or so um, and yeah various other sports specific things as well um, but it's something it's as someone who loves sport uh, it's been a, an honour to talk to different athletes um, around the world and, and just talk about these things. So, and is this something that you have kind of thought for a while that, you know, staying in sport administration, as it were, you know, is that part of a kind of long-term plan? Uh, yeah, it's something, um, it's something that I've been interested in for a long time. Um, I, I think uh, there's a few reasons. I think I kind of often say that I am massively interested and uh, uh, have always been in the Olympics and the Olympic movement. And, you know, part of that is just being a kind of fan and interest in sport, but part of it is a massive, like, debt of gratitude um, about everything. Um, but, you know, I, the 14-year-old me never thought I'd go to three Olympic Games and um, the, the opportunities that's given me, the opportunities to see my sport as a 12-year-old in Sydney and staying up in the night to watch that was really cool. Um, and so being part of that for the future, um, kind of protecting that and doing what I can to... Um, support that um, and yeah uh, and being an, an advocate for the Olympic movement um, and at the same time as obviously playing the most important part of that which is representing um, the athletes in the Olympic movement so yeah it's it's something that and I've done quite a bit of now in other guises with um, Commonwealth Games Federation, Commonwealth Games England and uh, the PTO and something that I've enjoyed. I don't know do you think where do, where do you see the games in in fifteen years time? Is is esports likely to come in? Do you think there should just be a totally separate um, event for esports? Because there's an inevitable kind of entrance for that coming in, isn't there? I think there's a real um, there's a balance to be struck with this. Um, I think on one hand there is it's important that the Olympic uh, Olympics keeps up with um, the times effectively um, and you know you hear a lot about that being because they need to keep people watching and, and TV rights but also you know if, you, if you're going to inspire the next generation of kind of people to be active and go out and achieve their goals and um, do things in the community and with each other and uh, and motivate people 
um, it needs to be relevant. Um, so yeah, for sure, the, the Olympics does need to keep up with the times, um, and that you know that's important. And I don't entirely know personally where that is yet, um, but I think esports, in some shape or form, is going to play a part in that. Um, esports is enormous thing; it covers everything from um, effectively uh, you know playing forms of computer games to uh, you know there's active esports now, and you look yeah. at uh, online cycling. So yeah, all of that. And at the same time, that needs to be balanced with keeping the integrity of the Olympic Games in place and um, recognising the traditions of it. And, you know, there's a a really important role in that. Uh, You know, when you look at an event, um, let's take the marathon, for example. Um, If you look at it now, you think, you know, two two hours of, or two and a bit hours of men and and women racing around uh, isn't a really super interesting event to watch per se so why don't we shorten that or stick in some obstacles or something you know to but you know absolutely not the the value of the olympic marathon of the marathon is is its traditions and the fact it's a super hard event and it's something that we can all relate to and actually even if you have no intention of ever running a marathon you can go wow i understand how far that is it's 26 miles um and I can understand how fast these guys are running because we know kind of know, you know, how what 12 kind of miles an hour is. And that that's amazing. Um, and then it's got this history of the event, obviously, going right back to the ancient Olympics. And at the same time, it's 0.2 miles because um, the finish line of the uh, London Olympics, uh, the first London Olympics was moved um, because the the king uh, <laughs> moved the the finish line. And so... All of that, like the history, and it's it's all part of it. And I think there's an important balance in there somewhere. Yeah. Well, not least because two of the biggest events at the games are the the hundred meters and the marathon, and they couldn't be more polar opposite in terms of how much time they take. So it's one of those things where whatever time zone you're in at various points of the day, you'll turn the telly on and be like just incredibly moved by someone's performance in, in something. Um, and we've had to wait five years for that this time rather than four. And it kind of, you know, you, you need that sort of cycle to tick around again, don't you? And just get everybody back on board with what will be an incredible event. And uh, the sort of the negativity around it a bit has to, which is always there it then just gets blown out of the water by the performances doesn't it yeah the olympics is an awesome event for so many um reasons uh both in terms of a sporting event and a a wider event for uh, for society and the world and yet there is the obvious challenge uh, of staging an olympics this year um, but I think, like you said, there's always challenges and there is always negativity in the lead up to the Olympic Games, um, hopefully, which disappears on the first couple of days. And um, I've got no doubt that will happen in Tokyo. And, and yeah, I think it's, a, it's an incredible story that the country are willing and are putting this event on now. And I think um, the positivity that will flow from that, I think people being able to watch sport and people watching people watching sport around the world uh, will have a fantastic effect and I think um, yeah that's one of one of the many reasons why it's so important to have the Olympic Games on this year and um, yeah I'm, I'm very much looking forward to watching that. And how does this fit in with are you in the middle of like book 
tour promotion type stuff as well. Obviously, we're we're two weeks away from well, two or three weeks away from the launch of uh, Relentless. One week it's next. We're next. Is it now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no. Time right. flying, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, tell us a bit about the book. And obviously, I've got I've got a few questions about some of the people you were talking to as well. But um, you know, obviously, it's full title is like the secrets of the sporting elite, right? So from talking to such a breadth of people did you did anyone kind of really jog you into thinking about your own performances as well as sporting success like did anyone put it in a way that made you just stop and think I've never actually thought of it like that before yeah so the whole um writing of the book uh yeah was a a great process um something I enjoyed immensely um from uh, doing the interviews to uh, kind of writing my thoughts down to doing a lot of reading and research about it to, to learning a lot more um, about writing the process of doing it with my um, co-writer uh, Duncan which was um, the yeah the, that whole experience was brilliant um, but I think the the things that I enjoyed most was sitting down and talking to some of my heroes um, about sport and about what made them tick and um, you know about a complete range of things and yeah, there were all sorts I learned. Um, a lot of things that I learned that were, you know, completely new. Um, so talking to uh, Michael Johnson about his approach to uh, preparing for racing. And, you know, that's something that's always fascinates me. You stand on the start line of a, a triathlon, you think, you know, something goes wrong. I've got two hours to sort this out. And uh, but what happens if you haven't? You've only got nine seconds. You know, the pressure, how do you cope with that, that buildup? And so much of the work, it seems to me, must be done. Um, before the gun even goes for that in, in the minutes before making sure you you know you're absolutely ready um, and yeah telling me about the process that he went through to make sure he was optimally prepared right down to having the people around him and they knew what they, their jobs were to stuff that is just interesting and you, you know we all probably actually intrinsically kind of know already but you often forget so one of the outcomes is almost everyone uh, said something along the lines of I hate the label of being super talented or and the the snooker player Ronnie O'Sullivan said it best um where he said yeah I absolutely hate the label genius effectively because it completely undermines all the hard work that I do day in day out um and and that's a kind of a, a real core theme that runs through a lot of the book yeah Ronnie O'Sullivan obviously um for those who may not know one of the most talented snooker players in the last sort of well for the last generation right i mean mm. how much time did you did you have with him did you were you was this written during lockdown or were you able to sit down in person with with some of the guys as well most of it was done before lockdown um so yeah i uh I, I sat down with him actually a couple of years ago now um and went to his mum's house and we had a couple of hours of a chat uh, over um some lasagna that his mum cooked us actually and <laughs> just sat there and chatted quite surreal yeah yeah it was very surreal and it was absolutely um fantastic yeah but yeah and most most of the interviews I did face to face I would have loved to have done um other things actually you know spent a bit more time like I spoke to Killian Jornet who's the um ultra runner if people don't know he, he um ran up and down Everest as you've got records of all kinds of long distance ultra runs at things like the tour of Mont Blanc, which happens 
over hundreds of kilometers and um, up and down all kinds of mountains. You know, I would have loved to, the time and being able to go for a run um, with someone like him and, and chat mm. as part of that. But ultimately, I didn't get to do that. But and I suppose to find those common threads between someone trying to pot a black to win a world championships or Michael Johnson, like you said, you know, he, the, the race might be over in seconds, but it's the build up to that moment. So, yeah, we're there were there common things that, that those conversations kept coming back to and that you could obviously relate to as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a lot of common themes, uh, I think along with what we already just said, um, something else that I really liked uh, was that, you know, consistency um, is often really key. And uh, that was kind of said really well by some of the jockeys, so jump jockeys, and for people all over the world who are listening, um, that's horse racing in the UK. And uh, there's a guy that I spoke to, uh, well, a couple, one called Richard Dunwoody, who was uh, basically the jump jockey in the 90s, the best. And then he and got um, superseded, I think is a fair word, by someone called A.P. McCoy, who was basically the best jockey, um, won the champion jockey for 20 years in a row from the 90s into, the, into a few years ago. Um, which is a phenomenal achievement. And that included winning, I think he ended up with four and a half thousand race wins or something, you know, just incredible numbers of which he actually lost a lot more because you, uh, you can race, sometimes you're racing three times a day in different parts of the country, um, multiple, most days of the week, uh, incredibly intense. And he, uh, and dealing with horrific injuries from falling off horses um, and getting back on and racing days later. And he said, ultimately, it's um, about, yeah enjoying the wins but not too much and not getting too down about the losses and, and just moving on quick um and and being super focused and yeah I you know I thought completely obviously different to what we know in triathlon but yeah so interesting um selfishness is a uh and that kind of obsession is a um a key theme that runs through a lot of it um and that's comes off from quite a lot of people but um it's really, there's a, um, I speak to the daughter of a really famous British cyclist called Beryl Burton, um, who unfortunately passed away, but was kind of a pioneer of women cycling in the 60s. And her daughter tells this amazing story, stories of how selfish a, a mum could be, you know, in a completely benign, not a negative way at all. Um, yeah, if I was saying that about Johnny, it would come across badly. But uh, Denise just spoke about it in almost with admiration of, um, of how single-mindedness Beryl could be and tell stories when they were going to races together. Beryl actually wouldn't let Denise get in the car with her um, because, because uh, you know, she needs her own daughter that much. Um, you know, <laughs> in incredible. Uh, and I think the, the last, oh, there's plenty of threads, but one of the last ones that I think almost everyone can relate, will relate to is um, the difference between confidence uh, and or self-belief and how important that is um, and a footballer called Michael Owen talks about that really articulately um, when he talks about you know he says confidence at the end of the day is transient it kind of comes and goes and you know you have an injury and it goes or you have a you have a great game uh, and it, it's sky high and then you get some bad press and it's really low and he uh, he says but self-belief is kind of a you know a static inbuilt thing that um great performers have and i just really like that way of um describing it and for you next 
obviously the ankle what what's the sort of timeline that you're giving yourself till you can get back to training the way you want to and i mean is it october kona is that yeah i'd say i'd love to um i'd definitely love to be in kona um yeah maybe some races before that and some of the, the pta races will be a real focus um but yeah i've got to um i've got to get my ankle healthy first um I really want to focus everything I can on um, working uh, to for the IOC Athlete Commission role. So I'm actually kind of focus on that over the next few weeks, and then by then um, I'm hoping my ankle is in a great position and I can push on and uh, train. And obviously the book launch as well. So there's going to be a fair bit going. <laughs> going to be a busy, busy man. I'm not sure where the Olympics would have fitted into all of this. Well, obviously, I've uh, kind of upscaled some projects um, <laughs> when yeah. uh, where since I've been injured, and uh, I'm the kind of person that needs things to do. So, um, yeah, I I, uh, I I wouldn't be um, I'd be a bit of a nightmare if I was injured and I had absolutely nothing to focus on. Um, so, yeah, these these projects have been absolutely fantastic and things I'm enjoying doing. And yeah, the book's out. Um, next week so the start uh, first week in july 5th of july to uh, order online and at all good bookshops <laughs> and uh, yeah I, I hope uh, i hope people enjoy it and um, find it find it interesting and of value as well brilliant well it's been great talking to you thanks ever so much for your time and thanks very much for having me good luck with the recovery thank you Brilliant to hear from Alistair Brownlee as he prepares for the next chapter of his career. We'll have more build-up to Tokyo 2020, both on the World Triathlon podcast and across all our platforms, including a new triathlon live show with Tommy Zafiris, Trevor Harris and Helen Jenkins talking all things Olympics with members of the USA and French high-performance teams, Ryan Bolton and Benjamin Mays. Subscribe to triathlonlive.tv for that and much more as we count down the days to the individual men's and women's Olympic races on the 26th and 27th of July, and of course, the debut of the mixed team relay on the 31st. Thanks for listening.